Hello and welcome to the JumboCast podcast. My name is Andrew Howe. Happy to make my podcast debut and it is my privilege to serve as your host this week, bringing you the inside scoop on all things sports on the hill and off. We want to thank you all for tuning in and I want to give a quick shout out to everyone here at JumboCast who made this show possible. With so much happening throughout the sports scene, we have a great show for you guys this week. First, we'll be joined by Sam Brill, who will sit down and talk to Peter, infielder for the Tufts baseball team, about what spring sports are looking like in the midst of COVID-19. Next, we'll get an inside scoop on baseball's ongoing World Series from our resident MLB expert, Zach Eskenazi. After that, we're headed to the gridiron with Trevor Russo to break down NFL headlines on and off the field. Finally, we'll be taking a look at esports, diving into Summoner Drift to talk about the League of Legends World Championship and the esports scene here at Tufts. As you can see, we've got a lot to unpack here today. So without further ado, let's get started. First up, we're here to take a look at the sports scene here on campus. Even though the NESCAC has canceled varsity athletics throughout the winter, many spring athletes still have the hope of getting a season in this year. The teams haven't stopped working to get ready for the potential games. Here to discuss spring sports at Tufts is JumboCast Sam Brill, who is joined by Peter of the baseball team. Take it away, Sam. Thanks, Andrew. I'm here now with Peter DiMaria, first baseman and infielder for the Tufts University baseball team, former NESCAC Rookie of the Year. Thanks for joining us today, Peter. Thanks for having me on, Sam. So let's take a look at the season last year. So we've got a lot of returning guys to the team coming back into the starting lineup. Can you walk me through what it was like for you and the team when the season was canceled? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. We had a lot of high expectations going into last season. We were super bummed out. Uh, we were supposed to leave to go on our spring trip that next morning until Coach called that emergency meeting and broke us the news. You know, the morale was super low in that locker room, but after a couple months went by, uh, we reconvened over Zoom is what we used to meet with each other. You know, we have even higher expectations this year because it just means more that, you know, you get to see that things can be taken away from you so quick and you got to make your time worth it here on campus. So we're coming in this year with very high expectations, high goals, and we're working really hard right now to get those done. Now, take take me through your summer. A lot of summer baseball was canceled. What did you do personally to stay in shape? Yeah, um, you know, coronavirus really threw everyone for a loop. Everyone was sent back home. So I'm from New Jersey, and it was one of the worst spots, as you know, being from New York with coronavirus. So a lot of the gym restrictions were not allowed. But thankfully, at my house, I have a stationary bike and some weights. And on top of doing that, I was just making sure I was eating the right things and staying on a strict diet. Um, but then as things started to open up, I was able to kind of meet with my trainers in secluded areas and finally started getting back in the gym and just kind of took it off from there. And how did those trainers and the trainers here at Tufts and coaching staff, how did they help you and provide for you so you could stay on top of your game, both mentally and physically? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Tufts Athletics did a great job of, you know, staying in communication with their athletes. Uh, shout out to Dan and Alex. They were really able to make the most of what we could do. And they were sending us programs, even though they knew not all kids had access to gyms and weights in their own house. They made body weight programs that were really, really good and tough in my mind, and I thought they were great. So your freshman summer was spent up in Rome, New York, with a lot of other college baseball players. How different was this past summer for you? It was super different. There was a lot of uncertainty going into the summer. I was offered a spot to play in the Futures League, uh, but I unfortunately had to decline that offer due to personal reasons. But I really was just trying to do as much as I could with everything that coronavirus took away from everyone. But I was trying to get into the gym as much as possible. I was trying to see my hitting coach, you know, just trying to keep a positive attitude through it all because, you know, it sucked. 
being away from your team, being away from your school and having a season taken away. But you got to think forward and think ahead. So I was preparing for the future. So let's pivot now a little bit to the future. The goal is obviously to progress each year. Upon coming back to campus, do you feel like you personally have done that? And do you feel like your teammates around you have done the same? Yeah, absolutely. You know, coming in freshman year, you're nervous first year and you're not really sure how it's going to work, kind of thrown into the fire of just college athletics and kind of the balance of everything. Um, you know, after you start get get rolling, you could uh, really look to some kids on your team, especially the upperclassmen, kind of show you the ropes and how everything's done. I personally feel like I have from my freshman year into my junior year now progressing, especially the team. You could just see from the freshman year, everyone, the chemistry was just building up. And then sophomore year, we had, like I said, unbelievably high expectations that were taken away from us. And I'm curious to see this year, junior year, I think we're doing a fantastic job. We're doing as much as we can, given the restrictions with coronavirus. But I really do think our team's progressing as a whole, which is really great to see. So you mentioned the uh, coronavirus restrictions. Take me through what a week now looks like with this Tufts baseball team. Yeah. So Monday morning at 7 a.m., we kick off with our only lift that allows us to go into the Tufts weight room, and that's 25 minutes. So that's our one lift a week. And then Tuesdays, we can't do anything, but I usually have to go down to the field to kind of get some extra work in. Wednesdays, we have practices and cohorts. Uh, no more than 10 people per cohort. Everyone's masked up down at the field, socially distanced. I mean, we're doing as much as we possibly can, given the restrictions Tufts has put on us. But so we're practicing on Wednesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays. Mixed in on those Thursdays, we're doing outdoor workouts with fly balls, which I think are fantastic. And then Saturdays, we're practicing again. So, you know, like I said, given all the COVID restrictions Tufts is putting on us, I think we're doing a great job of doing as much as we can. So you mentioned that in the weight room, you're only in there for about 25 minutes at a time. What's How different is the vibe this year from last year? And I, I know that guys used to be pretty much stacked up on top of each other at racks, pushing each other. How different is it in the weight room these days? Yeah, um, so... Everyone gets their own rack in the gym. So I think out of the Tufts weight room, there's probably about 30 to 40 racks and everyone, every man has their own. You have a set amount of weights and then everyone has their own programs that you're based off of. And there's a lot of flexibility on what you can and can't do. Um, <clears throat> but everyone's socially distant. I mean, the vibes are still there. Um, the trainers do a great job still playing music and that's fired up, especially in that 7 a.m. slot. You're going to need a little bit of a boost in the morning, but it's still kind of the same. I mean, we're doing a great job. Even though it's 30 minutes, I think all the guys can agree that you get in your full workout because you're determined to get it done. You know, it's a great workout as a whole. <clears throat> so now let's let's take it outside a little bit and go to practice. What does a, a normal practice look like these days? Yeah, um, so we'll start off there. We'll do our normal warm-up. Obviously, like I said before, we're restricted to, te uh, to cohorts, which is 10 per each cohort. So you're split up one cohorts on the first base side, one cohorts on the third base side. Uh, so you do your own warm ups, and then within those cohorts, you'll have individuals, which is per position. You'll have guys doing drills that are uh, position specific. And then after that, you'll usually do some BP. And now we're waiting to hear from Medford and Somerville about how scrimmages will work if they'll progress and let us go ahead and get those going. Because that's where really you're going to see a competitive side of the guys come out, and you're going to finally get the step on the field and kind of get an in-game feel. So with given the COVID restrictions right now, and given that we're not scrimmaging, do you feel that there's anything missing from this ball club? Um, no, I really don't feel like anything's really missing. For me, I think everyone can agree that 
as soon as we get on the field and start scrimmaging when Medford and Somerville opens up those restrictions on us, I think the competitiveness of the team and each guy is really going to come out. It can only make us better as a team. So do you think that we're equipped to open up at all? Do you think that we're ready to be scrimmaging? Listen, I'm not a medical expert or anything on coronavirus, so I can't really say much on that. I'm a person who really just followed the rules. So wearing a mask, I mean, you're just going to have to adapt to what's given to you. So if they want us to wear a mask and scrimmage, that's completely fine. We'll get it done. But, uh, you know, I don't think I am have any information or knowledge enough to make a decision on that. So I'll leave that to the professionals. So given all of the restrictions that are passed down on Tufts Baseball, you mentioned we're not scrimmaging. There are things that are, you know, clearly missing that are going to bring out that competitive edge. How do we as Tufts Baseball and as other programs with sports on campus progress and and reach that next level? I mean, I think it's just taking it day by day and really just trying to win each day individually. Everything's been so crazy with coronavirus. You know, you could wake up, have a good day, wake up, have a bad day. But with the restrictions, you can only do so much. We're doing as much as possible. And I think personally, it's just when you wake up, you kind of just got to be like, okay, I'm going to do the best I can today, given those restrictions that are put on me and just having that outlook every single day until things start to open up and just you want to be ready when everything's open up and ready to roll. Thanks, Peter, for joining us today on the JumboCast podcast. Good luck this season. Thank you, Sam. Appreciate it. Thank you so much to Sam and Peter for their incredible conversation that we just had about sports and, and everything related here on campus. I'm really hoping to see the baseball team take the field sometime later on this year. Next up, we've got baseball. After some considerable delays due to COVID-19 and bargaining agreements, we have finally made it to the World Series. After a shortened 60-game season and expanded playoff format, it's finally time to crown a world champion, with the Tampa Bay Rays taking on the LA Dodgers in a best-of-seven series in Arlington, Texas. Here to talk to me about all things baseball is JumboCast owned Zach Eskenazi. Now, Zach, the Rays narrowly escaped Garrett Cole and the rival New York Yankees in the division series and nearly blew a 3-0 lead to the Houston Astros in the ALCS. Meanwhile, in the NLCS, the Braves nearly took down the Super Team Dodgers, who clinched their ticket to the championship in Game 7. What are your thoughts on all these series being so close, and what does this mean for the World Series? For a pretty exciting World Series, uh, considering that both the ALCS and NLCS both went to Game 7. Um, I think this was the first time that this has happened since the 2004 playoffs, uh, where both leagues had a Game 7. Uh, in that series, the Red Sox beat the Yankees in the AL, and the Cardinals beat the Astros in the NL. The Rays were up 3-0 against the Astros. Uh, Astros came back, uh, won game, games four, five, and six, and the Rays were ultimately able to close it out and win game seven. In the NL, Rays were up 3-1, but then the Dodgers had a late series comeback to win the last three games and uh, take the pennant. Now, these two teams are very different in terms of structure and history. The Rays are a small market squad who are making their first World Series appearance since 2008, while the Dodgers are a perennial powerhouse with a murderer's row lineup led by the four new $400 million superstar Mookie Betts. How do you expect this World Series to shape up in comparison to other years? Coming off of the uh, two seven-game uh, series in the uh, championship series, it should be a pretty interesting series, especially as you said, these teams, yin and yang type relationship. 
where the Dodgers have one of the highest payrolls in baseball, while the Rays have one of the lowest payrolls in baseball. One of the major uh, differences in terms of strategy comes on uh, comes on the mound. Uh, the Rays use a pretty typical pitching rotation and try and have uh, each one of their starting pitchers go through a similar amount of innings. Uh, the Dodgers rely on their two trusted starters uh, and then try and pick later pitchers based on the matchups and the hitting rotation of the other team. Uh, in the regular season, the Rays played 60 games with 59 different lineups. Uh, the Dodgers have a, a core group of guys kind of in the center of the lineup and try and keep that pretty consistent throughout the season. And, and so, yeah, at, at the time of recording, you know, the World Series is already underway. So, Zach, um, game one has already happened. What did you think of the opening game here in the World Series? The opening game was pretty exciting. Uh, however, it drew record low viewership for a World Series game. Uh, on the Dodgers side, pretty exciting game. Uh, the Dodgers had a high-powered offense, and this was pretty evident in the first game. Through a Bellinger two-run homer and a Mucky solo homer. Uh, just to continue on the Mookie side, uh, he had a great game for L.A. He became the first player since Babe Ruth to steal uh, two bases and walk in a single inning. top of that, just kind of a fun fact, uh, Taco Bell was running a promo where if a player stole a base during the World Series, Americans would win a free taco, and uh, Mookie would, did this twice with the first coming in the 2018 World Series when he was a, on the Red Sox. Also able to pitch six solid innings with a run uh, and two hits and a walk. For the Rays, uh, it was a little bit of a tough start to the series. Glass now uh, was through 112 pitches through four and a third when he broke the record for the fewest innings uh, to throw 110 plus pitches. So after that Dodgers win, the Rays were certainly hungry for a chance to even up the series, while the Dodgers were looking for a commanding 2-0 series lead. Give us a rundown of what happened next. Good job of just being able to kind of stop the uh, Dodgers' momentum. Uh, the Rays got a pretty solid start. Snell started off really strong by pitching uh, four and two-thirds no-hit innings. And Chris Taylor hit a two-run homer in the bottom of the fifth. The Dodgers also started off the game with some pitching issues. Didn't really have that many rested starters going in the second game. And the Rays were able to take advantage of this. The Dodgers, however, made a late-game comeback. But this comeback ultimately wasn't enough. So yeah, series tied 1-1. And Zach, at the time of recording this podcast, Game 3 has yet to be played. So do you have any predictions about what's going to happen in Game 3? And also just give me some general ideas about how the rest of the series is going to turn out. It should be a pretty a pretty good game. Dodgers looking to take the lead again in the series. Uh, looking to do so behind Walker Bueller. Having a pretty strong playoff so far. Having a 1.89 ERA in his four playoff starts this year. They also have to rely on Bellinger and Betts for some solid out, outfield defense. You know, to continuously rely on their high-powered offense for the Rays. Uh, Morton has been having a phenomenal playoff so far. He's been pitching lights out. He has a .57 ERA and 17 strikeouts across the 15.2 innings that he pitched. On top of that, uh, throughout the regular season, the Rays were probably looking to capitalize once they get on base, too. All right. Zach, this is the golden question. I need to know, who do you have winning the World Series and in how many games? Uh, I would be biased towards the Dodgers. I think probably going to give it to them in six games. The Dodgers have looked pretty strong throughout the regular season. 
uh, especially so far in the playoffs. I like their odds. I think the Dodgers have a pretty pretty good shot at winning it all this year. So, Some bold predictions coming out here from Zach Eskenazi. You know, as a New Yorker myself, it hurts to see the team that took down the Yankees make it all the way to the World Series. But I'm really excited to see how the rest of this series turns out. More importantly, I'm excited for when the Yankees are in position to win the championship next year. Thank you so much for spending some time on the podcast today, Zach. Now it's time to talk football. With the end of week six, a lot of teams are nearly halfway done with their season, and we're beginning to see the standings sort of shape up and understand which teams really have it together and which teams need to make some big adjustments to have a shot at making the playoffs. Here to talk to me about the NFL season uh, is my friend Trevor Russo. Trevor, how are you doing today? I'm pretty good, Andrew. Uh, you know, I had to wake up a little bit early today, but you know, when, uh, when it's as nice out as it is today, I am certainly fine with that. And yeah. Uh, I, you know, there's another reason it's a spectacular day, and that is because my Philadelphia Eagles are the kings of the NFC East, beating the New York Giants 22 to 21 last night. That was a uh, that was a wild win. Didn't get to watch all of it, but upon replay, that is <laughs> there's certainly a lot of moments to talk about. Well, yeah, Trevor. Um, give me a give me some give me a quick rundown on Thursday night football, um, which happened yesterday between the Eagles and the Giants. Certainly a thriller of a match. Oh yeah, I'd definitely say so. Eagles and Giants. You know, they start out. The Eagles certainly start out strong with a Carson Wentz uh, rushing touchdown. They've been using him a lot more on the ground, especially with a lot of those weapons like Miles Sanders, uh, Alshon Jeffrey. Although I don't know how much of a weapon he can be call that this time uh, in their first round pick Jalen Rager out as well. Uh, and with uh, with a lot of attention being shown to the fact that their O-line has been decimated, you know, Carson Wentz has had to do it on the ground a lot. He had, uh, I believe, 49 rushing yards last week, as well as this rushing touchdown here today. He rushed seven times, uh, seen him get it done a lot on the ground. However, the Giants pretty much answered back with a uh, – with Golden Tate absolutely mossing nickel cornerback Craven LeBlanc. And uh, stuff went pretty slowly from there. Uh, the only scoring in the second quarter was Jake Elliott's 31-yard field goal. Uh, of course, the Eagles had a chance to put on actually uh, 10 points, 10 more points than they did in the second half. Uh, two of both, that didn't happen because of two devastating mistakes. The first, I believe, was second and 15, around like the 15 or 20-yard line. Uh, in the second quarter, Carson Wentz feels pressure coming from his right side. He rolls away. And uh, one thing you know about Wentz is he's always going to try to make the play, no matter how untenable the situation. So he rolls to his left. He tries to spin around. He chucks the ball to absolutely no one in particular. I believe James Bradbury, the uh, Giants' number one corner, comes up with a pick. And on second down, you just can't make a mistake like that, especially I mean, it was second down. He, had, he could have thrown it away, but obviously that hurts. And then at the end of the first half, you have the Eagles drive down to about the eight-yard line, not able to convert. Jake Elliott comes out for the field goal. Easy, gimme field goal, 29 yards, shanks it wide left. And uh, since signing his contract extension, Jake Elliott has only been 19 of 26 on field goals, which is 73%. So he is beginning to struggle a little bit for the Eagles. Coming out in the second half, the Eagles not able to get much on offense. The Jalen Hurts package, when they went to it, did not 
produce any good results. And the Giants start uh, driving here. They score a touchdown. Wayne Gallman gets it up the middle. So they're up 14 to 10. Uh, the Eagles and Giants trading out three and outs uh, left and right. And then red zone touchdown to Sterling Shepard. And the uh, Giants are up 21 to 10 with 6.17 to go. And it looks like the Eagles are going to have to score, stop and score like they've had to do the past couple weeks against the Steelers and the Ravens. They get the first of those scores uh, as there is a uh, touchdown. I believe the touchdown was to Greg Ward. They don't convert on that. The Eagles actually able to get a stop as a uh, tight end Evan Ingram drops a wide open pass. He beats nickel safety Will Parks on the play. And ultimately that proves to be the undoing of the Giants as the Eagles march down the field again, score a touchdown with uh, Boston Scott, beautiful uh, over-the-shoulder seam route to him, and they are able to stop the Giants on a Brandon Graham strip sack where Daniel Jones, once again, turning over the ball. He had two turnovers in this one. Uh, of course, Carson Wentz throwing his 10th interception of the game. Both pretty turnover quarterbacks this season for sure, but Daniel Jones, just he has no pocket awareness, and it kills the Giants in this. 22-21, the Eagles leading the division at Two, four, and one. What an effort for a pretty, pretty crappy Thursday night football game. And I, I, I characterize it by the quality of the play. Still ended up producing a heck of a finish. Yeah, what an exciting matchup between the two division rivals. And with the NFC East wide open, I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if anybody really takes that division crown. Uh, and other news, Trevor, there's been a lot of injuries around the league. Honestly, like even more than expected. Mm-hmm. You want to just give us a little rundown of, of any of the injuries that have been going on? Uh, yeah, uh, we had uh, one injury. Well, of course, if we're talking about injuries, we got to start with uh, the Eagles. They lost Lane Johnson once again with that ankle injury. So I believe Matt Pryor had to slide in at right tackle. Uh, the Eagles starting their ninth offensive line combination in eight weeks, which is actually, I believe it's the uh, uh, ninth offensive line combination coming from training camp. Deshaun Jackson, oft injured, comes back in this game after, I believe, a three to four week absence, gets hurt again, high ankle sprain. So the Eagles continue to be banged up. Of course, uh, last week we had the injury to Dak Prescott. Uh, There haven't been, there weren't as notable injuries in last week's contest as the week before. But uh, 49ers, also a very banged up team. They are going to lose Raheem Mostert for their matchup this week which means that uh, Jerk McKinnon and, and I believe Jeff Wilson Jr. will take most of, their, those, uh, most of those carries. But yeah, it, it, it certainly seems... Oh, there's another one too. Uh, Michael Thomas not practicing this week after he was supposed to be good to go. He might be out this week. So Michael Thomas not seeing the field, of course, got benched last week in, uh, because of a fight in practice. Of course, uh, one, it's not an injury per se, but a notable lost for the Raiders. I believe their entire offensive line has been put on the COVID IL as well as safety Jonathan Abram. That game has been moved out of the prime time and might also be canceled. So if you have any Raiders in your fantasy lineup like I do, you should definitely keep a very close eye on that game because it is a good candidate for a rescheduling. But yeah, that's uh, I guess what you could say on the injury front. 
Now, Trevor, we're, we're approaching this point in the season where a lot of these um, teams are starting to release some players and there's a lot of free agency news buzzing around the league. Um, do you want to just give us a little bit more info about that? Yeah, yeah. The reason I included the free agency topic is we have a couple of rumors and uh, actual signings about some wide receivers that five five years ago, if you said that they'd be in the, the mix for uh, possible waiver signings, Eight weeks in the season, someone would tell you that you're crazy. Des Bryant, the former Cowboys wide receiver who has been out of the league for a couple of years, he tried to uh, come back with the Saints, had the Achilles injury, but he actually has signed with the Baltimore Ravens practice squad. And that could be, I'm not sure how much of an impact he'll have, especially being a couple of years out from the NFL and being plagued with injuries. He definitely won't have the same explosiveness that, you know, the man we all knew thrown up the X for years. Uh, that's probably not going to be the same player. But aside from Hollywood Brown, I don't think many of the Ravens wide receivers have impressed. And for someone with a big body and a good catch race, that might be helpful for Lamar Jackson, who has had some struggles at times this season. And the other rumor from this week is that although the Ravens weren't going to sign him, the Seahawks are looking into acquiring former Patriots, Dolphins, and notably Steelers wide receiver, and a man who has been on suspension for the first eight weeks of the season, Antonio Brown. Now, of course, Brown having pending uh, legend, like legal action against uh, himself, suspended for personal conduct, uh, had a crazy tumultuous season last year. Uh, it would be insane if he were to come back to the NFL, but it it looks like uh, Russell Wilson's already kind of in the media trying to talk up this potential acquisition, saying that he is a reformed man. And the 5-0 and Seahawks, you can say, I guess, I'm going to be honest, personally, not a huge Antonio Brown guy. It seems like every time we say he's learned from his mistakes, he comes out and sort of disproves that. But the Seahawks, you know what? As we know, time and time, time and time again in the NFL, if you you can produce on the field, then your uh, the potential headaches, you know, that's a risk analysis question there. So, for a team that's five and zero, if Antonio Brown still has that sort of explosiveness that we saw in that game against Miami, then you know it it's definitely an interesting situation to look at for sure. Yeah, super interesting. I mean, a few years ago, as you said, I wouldn't have even imagined the, the likes of Des Bryant and Tony Brown being free agents and not being able to find a team. But just given all this recent news and all the injuries and drama that there's been, it's just a really interesting topic to look into. But on the topic of players leaving teams, we've got a lot of trade rumors coming up as the trade deadline is slowly but surely approaching. Trevor, you got any any inside scoops on that? Yeah, a couple of trade rumors. The Eagles, apparently, I, I know I've mentioned them a lot. And I am an Eagles fan, but they, uh, for a team that's two, four, and one, they've been producing a lot of news. But yeah, they uh, they are looking to trade Zach Ertz, their star tight end, who has had so far a pretty dismal season before he suffered that ankle injury against the Baltimore Ravens. The an actual trade that went down this week, uh, former Jaguars, and I guess a little more currently Vikings defensive end Yannick Ngakwe has been traded to the Baltimore Ravens, so another acquisition for them for a third-round pick and a fifth-round pick. This is significant because people might remember that Yannick Ngakwe was actually acquired by the Minnesota Vikings in the offseason as he pled 
time and time again to please let me be traded from the Jaguars. They did so. So he went from a one in five team uh, now to a one in five team. And now he is going to a five and one team. So it looks like he has improved his situation definitely. And the fact is he is going to enjoy being on that Baltimore defense that already features Calais Campbell and Derek Wolf. So interesting acquisition. Of course, the Vikings are in sell mode being one in five last in their division. Yeah, we'll see. And then one final trade rumor. I don't know if, how much rumbling there is about this, but AJ Green reportedly is not happy with the Bengals and was seen on the sideline mouthing the words, trade me. So we will continue to follow that situation. Some very interesting stuff as we approach the trade deadline once again. Trevor, I know we talked about Week 7 a little bit with that Thursday night football matchup, but there's a lot of great things that happened last Sunday in Week 6. You want to give us a couple of uh, recaps on, on those games? Yeah, we're uh, we're going a bit long here, so I'll try to keep it brief, but uh, I'll just do a quick recap of every game. So the Chiefs sit down the Bills on Monday night football, 26-17. to 17. Josh Allen only throwing for 122 yards. His MVP lauds were have been considerably uh, reduced since uh, since he started that season four and zero. Bills dropped to four and two. Chiefs five and one. The Cardinals absolutely blow out the Cowboys, thirty eight to ten, and one of the worst losses in the millennium for America's team. Kyler Murray not having as efficient as a game as you'd expect for a 38 to 10, but that Dallas defense continuing to just give up points and points and Ezekiel Elliott fumbling two times, Kenyon Drake, 164 yards and two touchdowns over in the battle between the bears and the Panthers. The bears actually surprisingly picked this one up 23 to 16. Uh, They're not doing it in any pretty fashion, but their defense has definitely started to dial in and Nick Foles, you know, the man, he, uh, he knows how to win games that he shouldn't. So Bears go to 5-1, and one, leading the NFC North now. Panthers drop to 3-3. Three and three. Ravens defeat the Eagles. They were leading for most of the game. Looked like they were in control. Carson Wentz almost brings it back from the depths of hell. And uh, the Eagles fail on the two-point conversion. Ultimate final score, 30-28. to 28. Eagles drop to 1-4-1. One, and one. Now 2-4-1, and one, leading the NFC East. Ravens at 5-1 and one behind the Steelers. Falcons actually pick up their first win beating the Vikings. They got uh, what I like to call the, the dead coach bounce, where they, much like the dead cat bounce on Wall Street, teams tend to play pretty well after they fire their coach in that first game. And the more surprising thing is that, not that they put up 40 points, but that they only allowed seven points to the first three quarters of the Vikings, who looked terrible. They dropped. Falcons go to one and five. Vikings drop to one and five. Steelers absolutely blow out the Browns. Uh, was not even a contest through most of this game. Thirty-eight to seven. Steelers still undefeated, looking like a top three team. Browns have a couple of questions here. Titans beat the Texans in an absolute thriller of a game. The Titans were behind, really didn't have a chance for most of this, but Ryan Tannehill proving why they gave him that deal. 364 yards and four touchdowns. Derrick Henry, 260 total yards, I believe, and two touchdowns. An absolute great train at the running back position. Giants beat the football team 20-19. Uh, to 19. They, not much to say about this one, honestly. Patriots in their first game back with Cam Newton drop 
a surprising one to the Broncos. They are under 500 for the first time since at the end of the 2001 season. Unreal stuff that we're seeing here in 2020. Colts beat the Bengals 31 to 27. They were behind for most of it, but Phillip Rivers 371 and three touchdowns gets it done. Lions beat the Jaguars 34 to 16. DeAndre Swift having a great day on the ground. Dolphins blow out the Jets 24 to 0. You don't usually see shutouts in the NFL. Adam Gase surprisingly keeping his job. I'd say he's the winner of week six for that. Ryan Fitzpatrick did well, not spectacular, but he has been benched for Tua Dagavaloa for the week eight game out of the bye. And finally, on Sunday Night Football, you had Rams 49ers, 24 to 16, a bit of a NFC West slugfest, but Rams dropped a four and two. Uh, having only defeated the NFC East, so maybe looking a little less impressive. And finally, Buccaneers surprisingly take down the Packers, who looked like the best team in the NFL through the first four weeks of the first five weeks of the season. Excuse me. Aaron Rodgers, terrible game, 160 yards, two interceptions, hadn't thrown an interception all year, and the Buccaneers defense really gets it done, as well as Tom Brady sort of re claiming his connection with Gronk a little bit. So yeah, that's a bit of a recap of week six. Once again, another good one, and glad to see the NFL is still in stride. Before we wrap things up here, Trevor, do you have any previews or any predictions here for week seven, which already would have happened after this podcast has been released, but it'll be interesting to see if any of the predictions come true. All right, so I'm going to identify a couple. I'll pick three games to watch from this week. Just looking up and down the schedule here. I'd probably say that Steelers-Titans is your game of the week. The 5-0 Steelers take on the 5-0 Titans. That is going to be an excellent match. Of course, Steelers have promising rookie Chase Claypool, who has scored five touchdowns in the last two weeks. We'll see if he continues his dominance through the air and on the ground. He's uh, surprisingly good as a runner. And the Titans, of course, they've got Derrick Henry. you got to stop him to win the game. I'd probably also pick... You know, I'm going to go with Buccaneers uh, Raiders as my other game, my second game to watch. Buccaneers defense really showed out, especially the uh, the secondary there. The Raiders, you know, you've got that situation with their offensive line. They were able to beat the Chiefs. They are a strange team, but I think they're an interesting one. I'd love to see how that matchup goes. And finally, NFC West matchup here: Seahawks and Cardinals. The Cardinals looks like they righted the ship in Week Six. Always a fun contest, and especially with the Cardinals' resurgence, I'm going to say that one. And honorable mention goes to Bears-Rams. And that's it. Always a pleasure talking to Trevor Russo here of JumboCast. Trevor, thank you so much for talking to me about football for a little bit. Uh, it was a little more than a, a little bit, but I'll uh, thank you again for your hosting, Andrew, and I'll talk to you soon. Before we wrap things up today, we're going to take a look at a sport that has thrived in the pandemic and whose world championships are garnering millions of viewers all across the world. That's right, I'm talking about esports? Yes, believe it or not, the professional gaming industry has been on the come up for the past 20 years or so, and this year's League of Legends World Championship are nearing its apex in excitement in the next few weeks. So to wrap up our show, we're going to take a look at the rise of esports, preview the semifinals and finals of the tournament, and talk a little bit about esports here at Tufts. Believe it or not, professional video games have become more and more mainstream over the last few years. 
There are some powerhouse games like Overwatch, Counter-Strike, and Dota 2, but the one game that has stood the test of time and is far and away the most successful esport of all time is League of Legends. This multiplayer online battle arena, or MOBA, has become a global phenomenon and has contained many aspects of traditional sports. Tournaments sell out arenas like the Bird's Nest in Beijing or Madison Square Garden in New York. Top players make seven-digit salaries in franchise leagues all across the world. Heck, even last year's World Championship Final garnered over 100 million unique viewers. Those are numbers only comparable to the Super Bowl. During the heart of the pandemic, while other sports leagues were shut down for months, the League of Legends Championship Series simply converted to an all-virtual platform, with games broadcasted to ESPN. Like it or not, the esports scene is on the come-up, and I can't wait to see how the industry evolves in the coming years. But enough talk about history. Let's talk about the big matchups we have to round out the tournament. The 2020 League of Legends World Championship featured 22 teams from around the world in a bubble in Shanghai, China. Out of those 22 teams, only four remain after intense competition in the group and knockout stage. For all you guys who want to root for a hometown hero, you're out of luck, as all three North American teams, Team Solo Mid, Team Liquid, and FlyQuest, were eliminated in the group stage. North America has a notoriously bad reputation in the international arena. Tournaments used to be traditionally dominated by teams from South Korea, but in the past few years, Chinese teams have taken over as the dominant force due to their more aggressive playstyle, winning the last two world championships. Meanwhile, Europe has become a dark horse in international play, with European teams making finals runs in both 2018 and 2019. The semifinals this year will feature two Chinese teams, Suning and Top Esports, the Korean Damwon Gaming, and Europe's G2. There are so many interesting storylines to cover with these four teams, but you know I've been rambling for a while, so I'm just going to mention a few. In the first semifinal, Suning will take on Top in a Chinese civil war for a spot in the finals. While Suning are for sure the underdogs, losing in a 3-0 series to Top in regional play this year, they have an impressive tournament showing, with bot laner Huan Feng having a breakout tournament. Huan Feng has an incredible story, who is living a life of poverty, family brokenness, and homelessness before working tirelessly for years before getting his big break on the main stage. They'll be facing up against tournament favorites Top Esports, who not only have former world champion bot laner Jackie Love, the best player in the world Knight, but also jungler Karsa. Karsa was a superstar on the legendary Taiwanese team Flash Wolves, who had years of international success before being broken up a few years ago. Taiwanese players like Karsta were initially barred from the Chinese leagues, but after some changes, we finally were able to see Karsta on the main Chinese stage, and he'll be facing up against his former Flash Wolves teammate, Suning Support Sword Art. On the other side of the bracket, we have G2 Esports facing against Damon Gaming. This matchup is a rematch of the quarterfinals of last year's tournament, where G2 ended up taking down Damon 3-1. After being embarrassed by this Western team, Damon are looking for revenge against G2, the Western Hemisphere's last hope. Take a look at the mid lane matchup for this one, where legends will collide. Damon Showmaker will take on G2 Esports' Caps. Caps, in particular, just had a spectacular quarterfinal matchup and will be looking forward to earning his third straight World Finals appearances and making a case for himself for the greatest European player of all time. By the time this podcast is available, the semifinals will already have taken place, but make sure to tune into the finals on October 31st at 6 a.m. And esports aren't just big on the professional level. The Collegiate League of Legends scene has taken over schools by storm, with over 500 teams participating in this year's Collegiate Star League championships. In fact, two of those teams participating are from our own Tufts University. And with that, I have an exciting announcement to make. We are excited to announce that JumboCast will be broadcasting Collegiate League of Legends this year, starting with Tufts University Blue taking on WPI in a best-of-three matchup this Saturday, October 24th at 3 p.m. Eastern. JumboCast will be broadcasting matches every Saturday at 3 on both YouTube and Twitch, and you can find all these links on our social media platforms. We're really excited to have some sports back here at Tufts, whether virtual or not, so make sure to tune in on Saturday to watch some high-quality gaming. 
And that's going to do it for this week's episode of the JumboCast podcast. We'd like to thank each and every one of you for coming out to support us here at JumboCast. And we hope to see all of you again next week. Once again, I am Andrew Howe, and have a wonderful day.